I hope you uh, picked up a, a copy of our uh, sermon notes that we'll be uh, working off uh, today. Uh, also, you can open up uh, your uh, Bibles to uh, Philippians, the uh, second chapter. Well, after a three-week break, and I really regret uh, that long of a break from our study here in Philippians, um, but, of course, that was out of my control with the uh, illness that uh, came to me. Uh, but we return to our uh, study, which has taken us into uh, chapter 2. Uh, now, chapter 1 uh, was all about living to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that was just the heart and theme of chapter 1. That as believers, we are to live with one ambition and that is to advance, to promote the gospel of Christ. While chapter 2 is all about thinking with the mind of Christ. And it is very important to see the inseparable relationship between these two. Learning to think like Christ is the key to loving one another in the family of God. And it is that love for one another that provides the credibility for our witness as we advance the gospel. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your what? By your love for one another. But thinking like Christ is also the key to motivating us to go outside the comforts of the family of God to advance the gospel and reach the lost. Now it's also important to remember that Paul wrote this section on the mind of Christ to deal with disharmony in the Philippian church which was threatening uh, their advance of the gospel. Now as you see in your notes, uh, we divided these verses on the mind of Christ into three sections. Uh, first, the exhortation to have the mind of Christ in verses 1 through 8. And then second, the exaltation of the mind of Christ in verses 9 through 11. And then on the back side of your notes, the third major section, expressing the mind of Christ in verses 12 through 18. Now, we have already completely covered the first two sections, that first page in your sermon notes. And we even began the third section before our break on expressing the mind of Christ, which I trust we will close out uh, today. Now, since we've had such a long break from our study, I think it's important, uh, although somewhat repetitious, to briefly review, uh, to just bring us all up to speed. So let's review that first major section, the exhortation to have the mind of Christ in verses 1 through 8. And look at that first uh, paragraph there in your sermon notes. In Philippians 2, we discover how the mind of Christ thinks, which inspired all of the words and all of the works of Christ. Now, just pause right there for a moment. The heart of chapter 2 is verses 5 through 8 which reads, let this mind or let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the very form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking upon himself the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now return to the review. Simply put, the mind of Christ never thinks to use the power and privileges of deity for his advantage but rather for the advantage of those he created and who rebelled against his rule. This attitude led Christ to empty his deity into human flesh, to become a servant in the universe in which he had been sovereign, and then humble himself by dying on the cross to bring salvation to depraved and doomed humanity. The mind of Christ led Jesus to treat sinful men as if they were worthy of his love and service when they were not worthy. The same mind that is in Christ is to control his followers, is to control you and me as we relate to others. Now, in verses 1 through 8, you'll notice we examine then Five truths about the mind of Christ. What it means to think like Christ and the application of these truths to our lives. Now, before we review these five, let me just be very personal and transparent a moment with you. Just open up my heart. You know, I've been at the church now close to 39 years. Uh, When I came to the church, uh, I guess way back in 1977, I was only 25 years old. Uh, I had only known Christ about five uh, to six years. Uh, When I came here, I had a great passion for Jesus. But folks, uh, and many of you will remember, I was really rough around the edges. And some of you may say, well, Brother Andy, you're still a little rough around the edges. And and that's true. But but I I was. There was a lot of immaturity. And uh, and I had a lot of deficiencies, especially uh, relationally. And just learning to relate, just learning to care, to, 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 to love. And, and the reason I share that is I just want to thank you for the impact you have had on my life. And I'm not just talking about you. I could just name so many deceased members of Edgewood Baptist Church that I will be forever thankful for, uh, for the impact they had on my life. Every single Every single thing I've shared about the mind of Christ over the last few messages, I learned from you. I mean, the sermons you have lived out before my eyes have had greater impact than any sermon I've preached uh, from this pulpit. So I just want to thank you uh, for being my teacher and uh, for how God has used you Uh, to impact my life, to challenge me, to inspire me uh, to live live these truths out as I've seen them lived out in so many of your lives. So look at these uh, five uh, characteristics that I've seen lived out in, in you and have blessed me in such a wonderful way. First, the mind of Christ is sharing with others the blessings of Christ. Uh, The very heart of verses 1 and 2 is that every believer has been the recipient of at least five blessings from Jesus. We have all received encouragement from Christ. 
love from Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit, and affection and compassion. And the application is, since I have been the recipient of Christ's unconditional love and blessings, I am obligated now to pass on His unconditional love and blessing to others. In other words, God saved you to bless others. There's nothing that God gives to you that He does not intend you to turn around and share with others. The second truth we saw about the mind of Christ is the mind of Christ is thinking about others with the attitude of Christ. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with lowliness or humility of mind, regard others more important than yourself. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the application here, love, and we talked a lot about this, and, and again, now we're reviewing material that took us three or four weeks to cover. So I would encourage you to go to the church website and uh, catch up on any of the messages you, you missed. Well, we talked much about that love is a deliberate decision to invest in the life of another person that will often initially run contrary to my feelings. In other words, as believers, we don't wait till we feel like loving. No, we follow Jesus. We love as an act to honor Him, to worship Him, and we invest in the lives of others, even when it runs contrary to our feelings. The third truth that we saw is the mind of Christ is looking at others through the eyes of Christ. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but look out for the interests of others. And the application, as a believer, I am to establish as the number one focus of my life, not to strategize and work for my good, for my benefit, for my welfare, but for the good of others. True joy is found in making others joyful. And then the fourth truth, the mind of Christ is embracing others with the arms of Christ. Verses 6 and 7, it says, Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard that equality as something to grasp for his own advantage, but what he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. So the application is, I now, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, I am to reach out and accept others as Christ accepted me, remembering Christ accepted me when I was unlovable and at my worst. And then the fifth truth, the mind of Christ is loving others with the heart of Christ. Verse 8, and it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the application for you and I is this, love, God's kind of love, the kind of love God wants us to live out before a watching world, is willing to make sacrifices, to bear shame, and to experience pain for the benefit of one unworthy of such love. And then this brought us to the second section on the exaltation of the mind of Christ. Uh, verses 9 through 11, where it says, Therefore also God, what? Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we looked at five truths. What was the reason for Christ's exaltation? The answer, vindication. Christ was put to death because he claimed to be God. And the resurrection and the ascension of Christ was the Father vindicating his son's claim, saying, yes, this is God in human flesh. This is the one that you are to bow to, that you are to follow. What is the title of Christ's exaltation? Lord. What should be our response to Christ's exaltation? Surrender. You know, I was thinking about the... Uh, children's musical last week. It, wasn't it neat? Uh, that was just a wonderful time. And uh, if you were here, the musical was built uh, was around Joshua. And of course it concluded with them going into the promised land and there, the, the challenge of the city of uh, Jericho and how God gave them uh, the victory. And, and the children alluded to this, but you know the real key uh, to that victory was in an encounter that Joshua had with the pre-incarnate Christ uh, right before the uh, contest uh, with Jericho. And, if you, and, it's, and it's just a beautiful illustration of what it really means to surrender uh, to Jesus Christ. And let me just briefly mention it. Uh, you remember uh, Joshua stole off by himself and he was on one of the hills that overlooked this valley where this what was considered an invincible military fortress was uh, situated down in a valley. And as he's uh, uh, evaluating his enemy, trying to figure out what's the best way for me to deploy my forces and how, how can we get the victory uh, down there, all of a sudden he realizes he's not alone. And the Bible says he looks to his side and he sees a man with his sword drawn. Now he initially does not realize that this is God himself, Jesus. And he just sees a man with his sword drawn. He's out in enemy territory. Joshua's a soldier. He's been a soldier his entire life. And so he goes for his sword. And he asks the question, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? The thought being, if you're for us, if you're, if you're one with me, let's join our hearts, let's join our swords and figure out how we're going to get the victory down there at Jericho. But if you're against me, one of us is about to drop on this spot. And then came the response that old Joshua wasn't ready for. The response was this. Joshua said, are you for us or you're against us? The reply, neither. But as captain of the Lord's host, I am his come, not to take sides, but to take over. And the moment Joshua heard those words, he knew he was in the presence of God himself. And he did the only sensible thing you can do in the presence of God. He put his face to the ground. And he said the only thing that you can say to Almighty God. He said, what saith my Lord to his what? Servant. And then don't miss this. Then Jesus replied, take off your shoes, boy, because you are on holy ground. And the fifth chapter ends by saying, and Joshua did so. And it's very unfortunate that there's a chapter break right there. Because it is in that encounter with Jesus that Joshua receives the battle plan, which made no sense at all from a human perspective, as we saw with the children. March around the city, toot their little horns, 
and the walls would come tumbling down. But as they, what, obeyed God, God released his supernatural power, and he did a miracle. And, and, and so what do we discover about true surrender? It's simply this. You're never going to conquer in life until you first become Christ's captain. You're never going to master sin until he becomes the master of your heart, the master of your soul. We also see in that passage that true surrender is not focusing on success in life, but focusing on what? Holiness. Take off your shoes, Joshua. You're on holy ground. I don't want you to focus on success. I don't want you to focus on outcomes. I want you to focus on me. I want me, your relationship with me, to be your greatest passion, your greatest pursuit, your greatest goal, to become like me. And then what's the third thing that we see? Surrender is offering your weakness as God's opportunity to demonstrate his power. Amen? And as Joshua did that, he gave them that great victory. Going back to our notes, what's the purpose of Christ's exaltation? Glorification. That he would be magnified. That he would be, uh, have the spotlight put on him. And then what is the application of Christ's exaltation? Answer, humility. We're to follow in his footsteps and humble ourselves as he humbled himself, knowing that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and will raise us up. Then we came to the third and final section on the mind of Christ, and that is expressing the mind of Christ as Paul then applies this truth in verses 12 through 18. And we've already noted the, the, the important thing to observe in these verses is the beautiful balance between Christian responsibility on one hand and God's empowerment on the other. You see this clearly in verses 12 and 13 where we read, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you both to will and do of His good pleasure. God does not simply command believers to think and live like Christ, but He is also given believers the motivation, the provision, and the power to do it through the indwelling of His Spirit. In other words, God only commands us to do what His grace has created us to be. My responsibility as a believer is to work out what God has already worked in me. And if a Christian fails, the failure is not God's. It is the believer's failure, the believer's failure to appropriate what God has already provided him. Or the failure could be just lack of knowledge, not understanding what I have in Christ. Or it could be unbelief or disobedience. Uh, therefore, let's begin by looking at the Christian responsibility. The first is we're to strive to work out your salvation through obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe this was the uh, last point that we uh, ended on a few weeks ago. I'm to strive to work out my salvation through obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, remember Paul is imprisoned, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now folks, notice now, let's be very clear. When Paul writes to work out your salvation, he is not talking about people working to get saved. I mean, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God, not as a result of works. Titus chapter 2, verse 5. God saved us, not on the basis of works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Now, we don't need to make this complicated. It's very, very simple. When Paul writes in Philippians 2.12 to work out your salvation, he is simply referring to how saved people live out their salvation in the context of the family of God and before the eyes of a watching world. How do you work out your salvation? How do you live out your salvation? How do you demonstrate the authenticity of your salvation that Jesus Christ truly is your Lord? Obedience, pure and simple. Now remember, Paul's concern in all of this is what? The advance of the gospel. Paul longs for the church to live out their salvation in the context of the church family, as we've noted, to provide credibility, the credibility they need to advance the gospel, which brings us to our next point. Here's the first point of obedience. He says, stop all complaining and bickering. Stop it. Look at verse 14, the very first part. Uh, Do all things without what? Grumbling or disputing. Again, folks, we do not advance the gospel of Christ as a church through complaining and bickering with one another. Amen? I mean, that is not going to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. We advance the gospel of Christ by demonstrating a genuine love for one another that's greater than our differences in the matter of preference. Go back to Philippians 2.3. Do nothing. Nothing, nothing from selfishness, from self-centeredness. Do nothing from empty conceit, out of arrogance, to put yourself up on a pedestal. No, but with lowliness of mind. You're to let lead in your thoughts as you relate to one another that others are more important than you are. And you're not to look just to your interests, but to their interests. See, behind all complaining is selfishness. I'm not getting my way. I'm not happy about it, and I grumble. And behind all bickering is empty conceit. My way is the best way. And I'm going to argue, and I'm going to debate until I win the day, and they come to their senses, and they say, you see, that I'm right. One writer put it this way. Nowhere does the self-centered heart of man more quickly take control than through the machinery of criticism and promptings of self-interest. James put it this way in the fourth chapter of his uh, epistle. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? He's talking about wars and quarrels in the church family. He says, where do you think this comes from? They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. And the reason Paul commands us to do all things without complaining, to do all things without bickering, is seen in the next two points. And look at those next two points. We'll put them together. First, he says, we're to shine as stars in the dark world. 
That's what he's called us to be as believers. That's what he's called us to do as a church, to shine as stars in a dark world, that you prove yourselves, he says, verse 15, to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And then the second thing, to stand faithfully on God's word. To stand faithfully on God's word. He says, holding fast the word of life. In other words, Christians are not to retreat from the world. We are to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to go outside the walls of this church. And we're to meet people in their brokenness and their sin. And we're to share the love and the mercy and the grace and truth of Jesus. Christians are not so much to curse the darkness as let our light shine, pointing people to Jesus. And how do we do that? Christians are to be a picture of contentment in Christ. And when you complain and you bicker, you're not demonstrating contentment in Christ, is what Paul is saying. So he says Christians are to be a picture of contentment in the midst of a world that is selfish and whining and full of self-pity. And he also says Christians are to live what? Morally straight lives in the midst of a crooked, perverse, twisted, and distorted world. And can anyone question that we live in a crooked, twisted, perverted world? And he's called us in the midst of this world not to run and hide, not to become intimidated when we're not politically correct, but he says to stand tall, to stand straight morally in righteousness and holiness and prove yourselves to be who you are, children of the Almighty God. And then Christians are to hold out what? We're to hold out the word of life, this book, this truth, the message of salvation in Christ in the midst of a lost world. So that's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to work out our salvation through obedience to the Lordship of Christ, to stop complaining and bickering, to shine as stars in this dark world, and to stand faithfully on God's Word. Now look at God's empowerment. Here's the other side of the coin. We do all of that because God is at work in you. This is so exciting, for it is God at work in you, verse 13, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I think of the two prayers in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul prays, grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Oh God, open the eyes of our hearts that we would see what is the hope of our calling. When he prays that, he's saying, God, open our hearts that as a church we would see your plan for our lives, your plans for our church. And then he goes on. And open the eyes of our hearts to see the the glory of your inheritance that you've deposited in us. In other words, he's saying, God, open our eyes to see the fact that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been given an overwhelming amount of grace and spiritual blessings, gifts to employ, promises to claim. And then he goes on, he says, oh God, open our eyes to see the power that you've already made available to us, that power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And then you go to the third chapter, and he says, oh God, grant us according to the riches of your glory to be strengthened. To be strengthened where? In our inner man. How? Through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And being rooted and grounded in your love. 
that we would experience as a church family together, the length, depth, breadth, and height of that love. And as we become secure in that love, we would not only love one another, but we would love a lost world, that we would know the fullness of Christ in us. And then he says, how's he in that prayer? Now unto God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything we could ask, think, or imagine according to the power that works where? In us. <coughs> to him be the glory in Jesus Christ <coughs> through all generations. So God is at work in you. Look at the next issue of empowerment. You are God's child. He says that you may prove yourselves to be children of God. In other words, you have been born into God's family. Just like when a baby is born, a baby has everything that it needs for growth. It just needs time. It just needs the proper nourishment. It needs the proper care and nurture. You lack nothing as a believer. You are complete in Christ. I think of 2 Peter chapter 1 that says what? We have been made part, partakers of what? The divine nature. God's nature resides in us. So what God commands us to do, He's already created us to be. He's created us as His children. And then look at the next point. You have been lit by God to be a light for Jesus. He says you appear as lights in the world. I think of 2 Corinthians. Let me just read this for you very, very quickly. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. It says, for we uh, preach, uh, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, listen now, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we have been lit by God to be a light for Jesus. And this is why Jesus turned to his followers. He said, you are the light of the world. You are the, you've been lit by God to be a light for others. And matter of fact, in the Greek text, you know how that reads? It re the emphasis is this. You and you alone are the light of the world. I mean, if you don't shine, there is no other light. You are the only hope for your culture, for your society, for the world for the loss, because God has raised us up as his instruments. And then notice the incentives. And let me just deal with these very, very quickly. First, joy at the future return of Christ. Joy at the future return of Christ, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Jesus is returning one day, and there will be an accounting an accounting that we will face with Jesus. How we utilize the gifts, the blessings, the power that he gave us to be that light, to hold forth his word of life. And then notice also joy in present sacrifices to Christ. Not only joy at future return of Christ, but joy in present sacrifices to Christ. He says, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, what Paul is saying is, I may very soon well be put to death because of my love for you, my investment in your life. Remember, he's in prison. He's awaiting trial. But he says, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy 
with me. And the reason he rejoices in these present sacrifices, he knows those sacrifices are only building him a what? A treasure in heaven when he comes to that day of accounting with Jesus. Now let me close with this. And I'll have to do this briefly, but this is so vitally important. Adopting the mind of Christ and reaching the lost. You know, we have applied much of this Philippians 2 passage on the mind of Christ to us relating to one another. And that's, of course, is very appropriate because that's what Paul is after. But there's also the application to us adopting the mind of Christ in reaching a lost world. And it basically involves five things that we see in this passage. First, it's never going to happen unless we're ruled by Christ's love for the lost. That's where it begins. It begins with verses 3 and 4. Like Jesus, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility mind, we're to regard the lost more important than ourselves. We're not to look to our interests as church's interests, but we're to look to the interests of a lost world and how we can reach them. You know, just write down, just, just read it this afternoon. Luke 15. Luke 15. We just need to just focus, fill our hearts and lives with a vision of Jesus until his love just absorbs us and captures us. Luke 15, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, all you do is fellowship and eat and, and move about with sinners, with outcasts, with those that are, are just of disrepute. And he answers their question by giving three parables. And, the, and you know the parables. The one he says, hey, there's this shepherd. He had a hundred sheep. One got lost. He left the ninety and nine to go after what? The one. And when he found that one sheep and brought him back, he what? He rejoiced. And he said, in the same way, heaven rejoices when one sinner turns to God in faith. Amen? And then he talks about this woman who had ten silver coins and she lost one. And she turned her house upside down looking for that lost coin and when she found that lost coin she what she rejoiced she invited her friends over and they threw a party and then the last parable of what the parable of the prodigal son and there you see the heart of God this son rebels he goes into a life of immorality but what is his father's response he sees him at a distance he never loses sight of his son at least in his heart and then he runs to him with compassion. He braces his son, who returning to the father in repentance. And he puts on him the best robe. He throws a party and he said, this is my son who was lost, but he's now found. And he rejoiced. And Jesus shares those parables. Like, this is my heart. This is my heart for a lost world. You want to know why I spend my time with sinners? It's because I love them. Because they're mine, but they've been lost. And I desire to win them back, that they might know my grace and my love. The second thing we have to do, we have to relinquish. I have to relinquish my rights and resources to bring the lost to Christ. This goes back to verse 5 where it says, Let this attitude be in you which was in Christ, who, who didn't take his deity as something to take advantage of, but he, what, he emptied himself. And just like Jesus emptied himself, as a church, we are to empty our lives, pour our lives into a lost world. Which means what? 
We have to make the time to do this. We have to invest our lives in resources. We have, again, the key is being deliberate and intentional. Because this was Jesus' heart, his love for the lost, in a very deliberate and intentional way, he emptied himself. He relinquished his rights and his resources to reach the lost. And we should as well. And then what's the third thing? We have to receive Christ's call to serve the lost. Referring to Christ, it says, taking the form of a bondservant. Again, you see this deliberate, intentional action. He, he willfully, it was, a, it, was a, it was a conscious choice where he decided as sovereign to become servant in the universe that he created in order to bring the lost to Christ. And let me tell you, folks, Jesus today is still saying to you and I, follow me and I'll make you to be fishers of men. I don't know of any verse that is a more concise, clear definition of a believer. What is God's plan for Andy Merritt, for you as a believer? He says, follow me. Follow me. What's God's purpose in you following him? To become a fisher of men. He wants us to catch men, catch women, boys and girls for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then he also gives us a promise. He says, if you follow me with the intent to be a fisher of men, he says, I will make you to be a fisher of men. I'll provide the power. I'll provide the provision. I'll provide the strategy, the objectives. If you would just give yourself to this one purpose. And then notice the fourth thing, very important, very practical then I have to relocate my life to reach the lost in relational ministry. I have to relocate my life to reach the lost in relational ministry. Jesus left heaven, and he came to the ghettos of this sin-cursed world. And if you and I are going to reach the lost, again, we're going to have to be intentional and deliberate in reaching out to the lost. We have to intentionally and in a deliberate way target neighbors, target co-workers, fellow students. In other words, you begin fishing in the pond where God has placed you. And when I say target those individuals, I mean you do it in an intentional way to reach out to build a relationship with them. And just try to get close to them. And reach out to them, especially in times of hurt and adversity and demonstrate your love. And folks, I guarantee if we would become intentional and deliberate in doing this, God would open doors and give us the opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ. And as a church, we have to be intentional and deliberate. In ministries like Sound Choice, like our after-school tutoring program, we came into contact with a number of families we would have never came into contact with if we hadn't been intentional and deliberate. If we hadn't been committed to building a bridge to this community to reach at-risk children and through reaching those children have the opportunity to minister to their families. Those are just two opportunities. There are many, many others. I mean, what, what could we do better here at Edgewood Baptist Church in reaching the military community? How about Columbus State that's just right down the road? How about support groups for grieving people? How about a support group for single mothers who need training and equipping and we just need to ask God yeah here we are God we're yours you're Lord this is this is this is all about you we're committed to be fisher of men you give us the direction you give us the guidance 
and he will. And then look at the last thing, to reconcile the lost to Christ through the message of the cross. It says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is our message. That is what bridges the gulf between God and man, the cross of Jesus Christ. And we must be bold. Now, folks, hear me. Hear me as I close. Yes, we should get involved politically. Yes, we should get involved in boycotts and other things like that to try to make a stand. But, folks, politics is not going to be the answer. Boycotts are not ultimately going to be the answer. The only answer for sinful humanity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel has been entrusted to his people, to his church. And as we have received it, we are now to pass it on to others. I have been saved to be a witness, to become a fisher of men, to catch people for Jesus. So we need to be very, very careful that we do not become comfortable in the family of God, that we don't forget a lost world that desperately needs the message of the gospel. It desperately needs us to be a, as lights, pointing them to Jesus. Well, as the invitation is extended, of course, this message has been directed right at believers. And, um, and again, the way I approach a time of invitation, this is now your opportunity to respond to the truth that you've heard. And I think where it begins, where it begins, don't become overwhelmed with the amount of truth you receive. Where it begins is, yes, Jesus, I surrender my life to follow you. Yes, Jesus, I surrender my life for the purpose of becoming a fisher of men. Now, Lord, you know my fear, you know my timidity, you know my weakness, my deficiency. Lord, I can't, but I praise you that you can. And so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that you're going to fulfill your promise, that you will make me to be a fisher of men. I don't know how you're going to do it, especially someone like me, but I'm going to trust you to do it. I'm going to trust you to do it in the, in the church, family, here at Edgewood Baptist. Would you pray that? So th that's what I'm asking you to do during this time of invitation. For you individually, say, God, I'm surrendered to follow you, to be a fisher of men. I don't know how, but now I'm going to trust you to fulfill your promise and do it. And I'm not only going to trust you to do that in my life, but in this corporate body that we call Edgewood Baptist Church, that we truly would realize it's not about coming to church as much as it is about what? Being the church. Walking as Christ walked to seek and save the lost. That we would know his heart, his love for the lost that would thrust us again relocate our lives to build relationships and in those relationships to look for those opportunities to share the beautiful message of salvation if you're lost great message for you to hear Jesus loves you you're that lost sheep you're that lost coin you're the prodigal son and he loves you you're valuable to him Jesus died for you shed his blood for you to offer you the gift of forgiveness to offer you the gift of his life, that you, you would know him at work in you to accomplish his purposes for you. So I would invite you to come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 